God's plan for Joseph was surely different than Joseph's plan. The atrocities he faced, the abuse, the loss of family relationships, and the years lost were certainly not on his to-do list. God's plan isn't always the same as our plan, but evil doesn't stop God. He uses it. We are in the story of Joseph found in Genesis. You know, it actually accompany it, it takes up almost the last uh, third of the book of Genesis. Did you know that? It's, it's, most, it's the longest discourse in all of the book. And in the book, we have Noah and Abraham and uh, Isaac. We have all those stories, but Joseph is the one that gets the most attention, and rightfully so. It's a great story. And I'm going to give you a quick recap of kind of where we are in the story today. Uh, Joseph has become second in command in Egypt. Uh, in charge of distributing food throughout a a worldwide famine. And um, his brothers, 11 of them, had sold him to slavery when he was a teenager many, many years ago. Um, Now they have come to Egypt seeking food because, well, there's a famine and they're hungry. (laughs) Joseph has revealed his identity to them at which they panic because of the evil they had done to him. And now they know that their brother who they sold has power over their lives. Yet he is gracious to them and sees God's hand directing the whole story, even the suffering that he's been through. So now Joseph has sent his brothers back to their father, Jacob, and told them, bring the whole family to Egypt. You're not going to make it in Canaan during this famine. So bring the whole clan, all 70 of them, uh, to Egypt. And Joseph, he says, I will provide for you and their every need. So I'm going to have us look at three different scenes today. Um, two from Jacob's life, Joseph's father, how he processes through this incredible news that Joseph, who I thought was dead all these years, is actually alive. If you remember, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Um, And now, not only is he alive, he's the ruler of Egypt. And um, then we're going to look at a scene after Jacob dies. So, the brothers have returned to Canaan And they approached their father about this news of Joseph. Genesis 45, 25. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. I bet they were glad and just happy to say that to their father, right? Yeah. We know we told you he was dead 25 years ago or whatever, but he's alive. It says this about Jacob, but he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. One quick side note. You'll notice that uh, we're talking about Jacob, and then they, uh, the Scripture says, then calls him Israel. And we'll see as we go on in chapter 46, it goes back and forth between these two names. The author actually really does want us to understand that this is not only about Jacob and his immediate family, but this is about the nation of Israel and their redemption. So his, his, his initial reaction, Jacob's, is, is twofold. It says first he was stunned. Now the word stunned means to be numb of heart. It's almost like 
this news just kind of hits and bounces off. It's like, it's like being so emotionally depleted to the point where you just have nothing left. You just think about Jacob's life. He has been through a famine wondering if his family will survive. And this time, he sent his sons, Joseph. The first time he sent his sons, Joseph kept one of them, Simeon, as kind of a hostage, ensuring that they'll come back. And so Jacob has to deal with all of that. And then on that second visit, Joseph, Joseph had told them, you better bring your younger brother, Benjamin. Ah, he's just a lad, Jacob says. You're going to take my youngest with you. And he has to deal with the loss of Benjamin, his youngest. Then his sons tell him that the ruler in Egypt said, no more food unless this happens. Jacob has had great fear great grief, great loss, and he's just worn down. That's one reaction. The other reaction of Jacob is this. He simply didn't believe these boys. <laughs> I mean, they didn't have a very good track record with him, did they? Years earlier, they had told him that Joseph was dead, killed by a wild animal. They knew that wasn't true. Now, now they're coming to say, Dad, not only is he alive, but he's the ruler of Egypt. Sure he is, right? And if you're Jacob, you're going, well, which one is it? You told me years ago that he was dead, and now you're telling me he's not only alive, he's the ruler of Egypt. They both cannot be true. So Dad took a little convincing, but... Um, they told him everything that Joseph had said, and they showed him all the provisions that Joseph had sent, and see, Dad, we're telling you the truth. You can believe us this time. Can you imagine believing something for over 20 years, something so heart-wrenching as your son being dead, only to find out it was all a lie? You'd have a hard time coming around, wouldn't you? You can understand his reservations, can't you? But it says he finally believed. His spirit was revived. The actual word means to come alive. So he decides to go and see his long-lost son, Joseph. So what can we learn from this scene? Well, here's one. What you have believed for a long time may not be true. Right? You ever had your mind changed? No, because I'm right. <laughs> See, J Jacob, he had to change what he believed about Joseph. He's not dead. I mean, I could go back and tell you and give you so many examples of in my own life where God has changed how I believed about something. It, it can even be theology or my relationship with him or what I thought about church and ministry and uh, but perhaps more important than the instances where we see God changing us is the attitude of openness it takes for him to work to change us. I mean, Jacob could have held his ground and said, no, I believe this all these years. He can't be alive. We can refuse to change at all costs. 
and lose out on what God has for us. Now, now, hear me out. Scripture says we ought to be confident in our beliefs, right? Are you confident in what you believe today? If you're not, then find another belief, right? No. Be confident in what you believe. It says so that we're not blown about, tossed by the winds and the fads of doctrines of the day. But that doesn't mean we ought not always be learners, seekers of the truth, willing to have conversations with those who might see things differently, that we may understand Scripture, that God may work in our hearts. Jacob is convinced his sons are telling him the truth. He agrees to go. The journey takes them through a place called Beersheba, where Jacob actually lived as a boy. It was at Beersheba that Esau, his brother, sold his birthright to Jacob. It's significant in his life. And on this journey, Jacob, he's not only going to see Joseph, but he is also taking his entire clan, his entire wealth, his family, and he's moving everybody based on the information he has gotten from who? His lying sons. He had to have some reservations or questions about how all this was going to turn out. Is this really, really what God wants? I think it is, but I would really like to know for sure. Ever been there? Genesis 46. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. In other words, he's saying, you will be brought to, back to Canaan and be buried with your father, your grandfather. And Joseph will do it. So God speaks to him. Look what he says in verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. He had the assurance. God had spoken to him. He knew this was the right thing to do. It didn't seem right by man's choices for him to leave his homeland and journey to a foreign land. But God had spoke. Jacob worshipped him, sacrificed towards him. And I want to think that the sacrifices Jacob offered symbolized the sacrifices in his own heart, in his own life. I'm willing to do whatever it is that you have for me. I just want to know I'm in the middle of your plan. And God gives him this vision, this vision confirming the move. I, I'm God. I'm God of your father. Don't be afraid to move to Egypt. I will go with you. Sometimes we just need to say, okay, Lord, I'll do, I'll do whatever. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll stay. I'll, I'll accept the challenge. I'll do nothing sometimes. I'll do whatever. I will do it as long as I know it's in your plan and you're with me. 
God wants us to know his will. You believe that today? He doesn't just play cat and mouse with us. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to hide it behind this. You're going to have to try to figure out the combination in order to get my will. God wants us to know his will for our life. Have you ever been in a situation where you would just like a little confirmation? I think I'm doing right. I, this feels like I ought to walk this. I, I, I'm not sure, but could you just give me a little help here? I mean, you're willing to do whatever. You've sacrificed your will. You just want his. You think you're on the right track, but I really don't want to miss what he has for me. In the spring of 1998, Cindy and I found ourselves in a place where we had a big decision to make. Uh, I had been offered a position to move our family from Georgetown to become the pastor of a church in the state of Alabama. By man's view, this was a great offer and uh, a great opportunity for where I was in ministry and uh, not only that, if, if, if I knew that by turning it down, if that was where it ended up, I, it had some consequences in the denomination in which I served. We both wrestled with this because we sensed that God was leading us to stay in Georgetown where we did not have a job instead of moving to take this opportunity in Alabama, which was a job it just didn't seem right to turn it down, yet we felt that's what God wanted. I remember a conversation we had about it, and Cindy said, maybe you've asked this question, why can't Jesus just show up at the end of the bed and tell us? Why can't one night he just appear and say, okay, this is what I want you to do, right? <laughs> In the course of that conversation, she even said, Hey, God gave Moses a burning bush. How could he miss it? Right? <laughs> I can't remember if it was that day or sometime later that week. And um, she headed out for her morning run. And uh, back then we lived on the east side of Georgetown, not too far from the university. And she was walk walking down University Drive in front of the college there. And uh, across the street from the university, there's a little church that sits on the corner uh, where a man was mowing the grass. And as Cindy came upon that scene, she was walking in front of the church, she heard the mower hit a rock, sparks flew out of that mower, and one spark flew into a bush. that was immediately engulfed in flames. <laughs> she, I didn't say this in the first service, but she says that there was a row of bushes, and it was amazing. It was almost miraculous. It was just one bush. Just one bush. I, I have here, she left without her phone that day, but I think back in 1990, I'm not sure we even owned our phones yet. Some of you can't imagine how that would like, be like without having a phone, right? But yeah. 
And she's standing there watching this burning bush, and a, a man drives up, and he says, and he has a phone, and he's holding it out, and he's just motioning to my wife because he can't speak English. And he had 911 in his phone. Here, you're going to have to talk to him. So she was thrust into the scene of summoning the fire trucks which came and arrived. And she gets home just rattled from her morning run. And she relays to me this frantic scene. She hadn't really stopped and thought, neither one of us, what God was actually doing. We both came to this realization that I guess he felt like we needed a little extra help. Here's your own burning bush. He loves us, doesn't he? And with confidence, we called and we turned down the offer and uh, stayed in Georgetown wondering what great adventure God had for us. No job. God had gone out of his way to confirm his call. God wants us to know his will. Here's something else we learned from this scene. What you have wanted may not be God's plan. I think the younger you are, the more you need this point. You see, no doubt, leaving Canaan was not Jacob's plan for his life. It's the land that God gave his grandfather Abraham. It's where he grew up. And I will always say this. God has a plan for your life. You have a plan for your life. Which one do you think is more fulfilling, purposeful, and exciting? I mean, I compare it to the kingdom of heaven. All believers are going to one day enjoy the kingdom of heaven. You ever think about that? Can you imagine a person on this earth awaiting the rapture saying this, I'm not sure I want the rapture to come until I'm able to retire and live out my life. I have been saving and saving and saving. I have plans for my retirement. Maybe I might even move to a glorious over 55 community (laughs) that has three glorious golf courses, play pickleball every single day, take a cruise every now and then. Can't you wait, Jesus? I mean, imagine the rapture happens and, 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 and you're, walking, you're walking down the streets of pure what? Gold. The walls are made of jasper. The foundation of the city is every kind of precious stone and sapphire and emeralds, topaz, amethyst, many others. It's all in Revelation. The city, your new home, has no need of the sun or moon. Why? Because the glory of the Lord brightens it. Everything is filled with his glory. There is no temptation, no sin, no sorrow, no more tears, no depression, no death. Only the eternal presence of the joy of the Lord And you'd rather play golf? (laughs) Sometimes we don't know how silly we sound. 
Amen. The last scene I want to look at is in Genesis 50. Jacob's died. They carried his bones back to Canaan. They buried him. They've all come back to Egypt to their new home. We, we briefly looked at this scene last week where the brothers now fear that Joseph is going to take his revenge out on them now that dad is dead. Here it comes. And yet Joseph's response is, was just that of graciousness, forgiveness, realizing the hand of God through it all. I didn't read this last week, but this is his closing comments to his brothers. Genesis 50, 19. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive, so therefore... Do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Don't you love grace? Joseph rose above the hurt of his past and uh, he saw how it all fit into the story of God for his life. One important point to note, he never says, brothers, what you did was good. He never says that. What they did was horrifically evil. But in the same breath, he proclaims that evil will never stop God. In fact, God will take the evil, and he will turn it on its head and use it for good. I mean, God does it all the time. So here's the point. Evil doesn't stop God. He often uses it. We don't think of God that way sometimes, do we? We see something that's terribly horrible, and we just go, there's nothing good that could come out of this, and yet here comes God, and he weaves the situation into somehow being good for our very lives. Case in point, chapter 7 of Acts, Stephen is stoned to death. And what happens after his stoning, it says a great persecution of the church broke out. And they're, they're running from Jerusalem, fleeing for their lives. Look what it says in Acts 8.1. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It was a terrible day for the church. Oh, but remember what Jesus had said when he was getting ready to ascend to heaven and he had his, all of his followers there? In Acts 1.8, he says this. You flip the verse, 8.1, now is 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, where you are now, and where? In all Judea and Samaria. The same two places in Acts 8.1 and even to the remotest part of the earth. So this, this evil persecution actually launched the first mission work of the church. On January 9th, 1985, there was a pastor named Hristo Kulichev, 
congregational pastor in Bulgaria. He was arrested. He was put in prison. You know what his crime was? He kept preaching in his church when the state had appointed a different pastor. And there was a sham of a trial, and he was sentenced to eight months in prison. During his time in prison, he made Christ known every way he could. And he wrote this when he got out. I love this. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions. <coughs> and it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. <laughs> God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. What, what lens are you seeing things through, right? I mean, you look at the world today. I mean, if I ask you, do you think Satan is extremely active in our world today? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you can see it. He, he is preparing the mark of the beast. He's conditioning the masses to accept complete government control. He's laying the groundwork for how he will deceive the nations and explain the upcoming rapture. He is actively preparing to take over the world through his servant, the Antichrist. It's all in the works. It's all happening. But know this. He's playing right into Jesus' hands. <laughs> he is. It, it, Jesus told us about all these evil tactics in his word thousands of years ago. These, these events will, will bring about the ultimate salvation of the Jews. They're, they're going to recognize Jesus as their true Messiah during the tribulation and come to faith. There's going to be this ushering in of a new heaven and a new earth. What Satan means for evil, God uses for good. Isaiah 14, for the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Oh, and then there's this scene in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago when evil thought it was winning. It took an innocent man and stripped him and beat him and pushed a crown of thorns into his skull. They mocked him. They hit him. They spit on him. They whipped him. After the sham court sentenced him, they led him to a mountain where they nailed him to a cross. They drove the nail into his right hand and into his left and one through his feet. The cross was hoisted. The cross was dropped into its hole. And there he hung. For me. This, this, this horrific evil producing the ultimate good for you and you and you and you and me. Do you know him today? First Peter 2, 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him today? He did all this for you. If you come to him, he will cancel out your sin, every single one of them. He nails them all to the cross. He brings to life that which is dead. He heals that which is wounded. He loves you. He desires you. He wants you. Do you know him today? We do hope that you've enjoyed this episode today. If you'd like to learn more about Grace Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas, please visit us at gbcgt.org. Many blessings from our church family to yours.